David Lafferty. I'm here on this episode of The Critical Catholic uh, by myself. Mike Lewis is off this week. Just wanted to mention that uh, Mike Lewis uh, can't be with us this evening because he had a, uh, a tragedy in his family. His beloved older sister passed away this week from a, a congenital health problem. So um, I'll ask you to, to please pray for the repose of, of her soul and for the whole Lewis family. But I'm, I'm here alone, but I'm, I'm with uh, a guest that I'm really excited to speak with. And this is Dr. Brett Sulkult. He is a theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina, Saskatchewan, and he also appears regularly on the Thinking Faith podcast. Um, he writes for Church Life Journal on a fairly regular basis, and he has a book out right now on transubstantiation, and that's something that you can find. I checked it out. You can find it on Amazon, uh, so have a look for that if you're interested. Um, and he's also told me he's working on a, a new book for uh, for Catholic teachers. So welcome, Brett. Hi, good to be here. Excellent, thanks. We, I, you know, Mike and I were, were talking about you. He had pointed out that you're writing this really interesting stuff on conspiracy theory, and he said this would be a great guy to have on the podcast. And when I looked at your work, I, I, I fully agreed. Um, and I thought, yeah, though this is this is absolutely perfect. This is what we're all about on uh, the Critical Catholic. So, um, just before we get into uh, our conversation, I'd like to uh, just just offer a, a quick prayer that we that we usually say at the beginning of, of our uh, our show, just to, to help get us in the in the zone. So, um, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, please guide us in our discussion. Help us to dispel confusion, discern fact from fiction, and cleave to the truth. Allow us to contribute to the creation of a healthy Catholic media culture. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so you know, I gotta say, it's wonderful to be talking to a uh, fellow Canadian. Uh, there aren't that many uh, Canadians on uh, where Peter is, so this is this is pretty cool. We're taking over. Um, so I'm I'm in Ottawa, uh, Ontario, and and you're in Regina. How are things going in Regina? Pretty good. Rainy. Uh, we're we're uh, farm country, and it's uh, the farmers just got the seed in the ground most of it and uh the skies opened up so we're pretty grateful out here uh this weekend and uh missed a bunch of baseball practices but that rain's probably worth billions of dollars in the granary by the end of the year so we'll we'll skip baseball for the weekend yeah it's worth it for sure and that's great that you're getting back to things like baseball right now in ontario we're in the midst of a lockdown still we had a bit of a setback things got a little out of control and we're still trying to get the uh, vaccines rolled out to everybody so and it's 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 coming along though and it's uh you know we're, yeah uh, things are picking up i think i think my my boys who are 12 and 14 are eligible now so we can take them down to the pharmacy just down the street later this week Wonderful. That's great. Yeah, I, I got I got vaccinated recently, and it uh, it it feels good to uh, to have a little protection, a little more confidence going out and about, and uh, and I think I'm I'm feeling that confidence in, in people um, outside now, and you know it just feels like the the, the thaw is coming, and, and things mm -hmm. are you know things are getting back to normal. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd like to to start off um, by 
asking you how you became interested in conspiracy theory. And mm -hmm. I should I should mention that uh, this show, the the Critical Catholic, that's one of the reasons that we started this show um, is because we were dealing with so much uh, misinformation and conspiracy theory um, kind of seeping into the Catholic world and Catholic um, certain areas of Catholic media. And we felt that it was good to have a, a regular show that would look at this, look at some of the, the problems that it raises and, and maybe try to help do something about it. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you could, could you just give us a, a, an overview of how you became interested in this, this phenomenon of, of right. conspiracy theory? Yeah, I mean, I've, I guess I've always been interested, but it became a sort of professional interest for me around the time of the Amazon Synod. So I work in a in a diocesan office, and I, I try to stay up on my reading, what's going on in the global church, and and um, and following the coverage and the reactions to the various proposals or the or the imagined proposals or the ostensible proposals or whatever of the Amazon Synod, um, just it felt like there was a shift happening. I mean, ever since Pope Francis was elected, there have been Catholic media outlets that have taken a certain stance that that maybe goes beyond normal journalistic license in terms of interpretation. I mean, some ill will in interpretation, right? And just 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 an unwillingness to try to report what is true, but but coming with a very specific agenda. But with the Amazon Synod, it seemed to it sort of go into sort of this hyper phase. So I actually said to my bishop, who's my boss, you know, I think the bishops need to start thinking about this because it's becoming a real problem. And maybe you might propose to your fellow bishops, you know, that when, when next time you have a plenary assembly, they, they bring in speakers and different things. You might look for someone who could address this topic. And he said, well, why don't you become an expert in it? And I said, well, well you're the boss, I guess. Um, so... I mean, so I went from reading various things on the internet, not so much about conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theory style things, right? I was reading those kinds of things and picking them apart and then some of the reactions to them. I went from that to like getting a bunch of books, like academic books by psychologists and, and social theorists and, and whatever um, to learn about like what, like what really is a conspiracy and how does it work and, and how does it impact people and so I, I just started reading. And as I started reading, I was able to see a lot of things much more clearly, right? Because the, the, the thing about conspiracy theories is they're slippery. Like they're designed to be tough to get a, a handle on, you know? And we don't have a lot of good categories for them. They've been designed to subvert our best categories for understanding information. Uh, and so I found that I had categories for parsing what I was reading and that that was really helpful. And so then, then I started engaging in, with in different particular questions, and I wrote a couple pieces. And when people read them, I got a lot of responses that were like, "Yes, that's that's exactly what it feels like when I read a conspiracy theory." You know, you've you've sort of helped me see and understand what. It, and the thing about conspiracy theories is, a lot of people when they see them, they know something's fishy. Uh, even conspiracy theorists themselves know because because they will say they'll post on my Facebook, you know, they'll say, well, is this a conspiracy theory? And 100 percent. Yes. Every time they do that, it is because they recognize what other people think is is funny business. Right. 
And so uh, it's it's been helpful to have categories to think about it and to help other people think about it. It's also it's also a little scary to watch the information environment sort of morph because this isn't I mean that this is cultural, but this is also technological, right? So the way that the way that information spreads on social media is different uh, than it has spread. Not completely different, but but there's new things happening in the way information is spread and shared that have really complicated the situation and given conspiracy theory thinking a real boost. And then throw in throw in something like a pandemic, and you've got a perfect storm because historically speaking, conspiracy theories always thrive in times of uncertainty, right? When people are trying to make sense of their world. So between the technological changes in in communications. And things like the pandemic, it's, it's really gotten crazy out there. I, I agree. You know, I think the uh, the Amazon Synod, that, like you pointed out, was a real turning point where this thing, stuff got really, really crazy. Um, and it, I found it so frustrating when, you know, people would see stuff on uh, that was that was occurring at the, the Synod and Vatican News would actually usually write a, a, a very nice contextualized piece about everything that had happened, but that would always come out like you know like a day later or or something. And that, but there were all these other outlets that could just produce stuff almost <laughs> almost like minutes later in some cases, right? I, well, I I actually think a lot of things were written beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think because you this, you already know what LifeSite News is going to say three days before it happens. There, it, there's no guesswork involved in, in what they're going to say about a given thing. So they can basically write things in advance, uh, tweak for a couple of sort of details and, and have it ready to go. I mean, one of the things about conspiracy theories is, is a kind of weird, shocking predictability. Like you, like you know what their answer to a given problem or situation is going to be. Uh, they they sort of telegraph it. So I, I do think that there was a lot of, but this goes to the communications technology, right? You get out of the gate first, you get the hits. Um, and and it's it's much harder to get the horses back in the barn than to let them out in the first place. And and the 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 environment drove this need for hits and interactions and whatever, which which are how these these groups monetize their platforms. Uh, and so I think there was a real incentive to just be like, let's get something out. We, we can write the same basic story 15 times in a row. Yeah, uh, there, there's a real repetition to a lot of it. It's the same it's, themes it's the over same and over thing again. Over yeah. and over, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, when just before, I think it was just before anyway, the, the, the Amazon Senate happened or, or as it was happening, um, a, a website appeared called Pan Amazon Synod Watch, um, which was uh, run by a, a group associated with the tradition family property movement. And they were laying out all these, they had all these articles and you could tell that a lot of the stuff that was, that ended up being kind of coming into Catholic media on social media was being somehow like being taken from this source material, or at least that source material had sort of planted the seed for a lot of things that, that then spread on social media. So there was some real organization to a lot of it. Um, it's a very strange more. thing because the, the narrative is, look out, here's what the liberals are going to try to make the synod about. And then, 
and it's you know it's women deacons and it's ordained priests right and and it was it was the very conservative outlets that managed to keep those issues at the forefront and then when you read Caridia Amazonia it gets like um a little treatment in the fourth chapter on those questions uh and it, it was far from the central focus of the of the thing but i mean it's 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 both sides almost collude to undermine the church's ability to have a healthy discussion about the central issues because everyone's media whether you're liberal or conservative everybody's media numbers are driven by the controversial issues and it was laid out by media before the thing started that this is what we're going to all talk about for the next few weeks yeah i mean to be fair it was not just the kind of far right catholic media that was doing this it was um there was also a lot of hype generated by liberal catholic media or just the liberal media in general about the potential like implications for for changes to um to you know catholic discipline and things like that um that could come through this synod um so there is there is some blame to go around and 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 in the end like you said it seemed like a lot of people didn't really experience the synod they experienced all the conspiracy stuff around it but they missed the whole point of it in some ways like the you know the the really substantial um issues that were that were discussed so it's it's a tragic thing that we're not sometimes actually seeing what's going on in the church we're we're just seeing a sort of parody of it right yeah yeah it's really really a circus and it's both these groups feed each other i mean they 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 butter their bread by spending their time on each other uh you know and i i think it's worth recognizing that that they've cultivated an economic plan that requires that kind of rivalry right if they were to step off and say like we're not going to give this any air because that will subvert the the workings of the church and and the church's ability to have healthy discussion um they'd be cutting into their own their own you know profits i mean or even if they're non-profit cutting into their own revenues right yeah absolutely it's the uh, the outrage bait that uh, that drives the the clicks all the time um and it's a very difficult thing to uh to fight against um so you, you published just just recently uh, a piece on the the Word on Fire blog, which I, I really really enjoyed. I thought it was very insightful. Called Faith, Reason, and Conspiracy Theories, and I've put the link in the um, in the chat, uh, and for for anyone who wants to check it out. Um, but in this piece, you and I've, I mentioned this earlier. You're taking a bit of a, a different approach that, than I might take in that you're coming at this from like a theological, philosophical perspective, which I find really interesting and, and refreshing. And you start by looking at the relationship or conspiracy theory, um, but by looking at the relationship between truth and faith. And I wonder if you could expand on the position you outline here on the relationship between truth and faith and and how conspiracy theory subverts this or or (laughs) this this model yeah i mean a catholic epistemology says you don't know anything without faith it's not only it's not only the truths of our catholic faith it's not only things you know that are revealed right it's not only divine revelation that we know by faith but even something like science requires trust in certain basic commitments right that my mind has real access to true knowledge about reality or that my senses are reliable, or that my reason is reliable. 
So all of our knowing, all of our access to truth is, is um, follows upon an act of trust. You can't get to truth without trust. Um, and it often, like very, very often, that's trust in some authority, right? Whether it's a medical authority or a scientific authority or, or whatever. I mean, you know, you, you just, you don't check that the milk is not poisoned every time you go to the grocery store. I mean, there's basic trust that makes it able, makes you able to operate in the world. Um, and, and, but then um, when trust breaks down, you don't actually get to go to a point where you say, well, I'm just going to be a critical consumer of everything who checks everything for myself. Anyone who tells themselves that that's what they're doing has simply blinded themselves to the fact that now they're trusting something else. And, and I think what typically happens with the, with the conspiracy theory thinking is, okay, there's reasons to be critical in our engagement with mainstream media. I mean, who would deny it, right? I mean, they get things wrong. Uh, they should be checked. They have particular issues where they're almost always biased, right? And I mean, if you're a pro-life Catholic and you've been watching mainstream media deal with abortion or euthanasia for 30 years, you know you can't trust them to deal well uh, and fairly on those topics, right? So yeah, you should you should have, uh, you know, your critical lenses on when you engage here. Um, what happens with the conspiracy theorist is that that criticism or that critical engagement with with mainstream sources gets to the point where it's just an automatic rejection and but then they what what they don't notice happens is other sources any source that that rejects a mainstream interpretation gets a kind of free pass and doesn't get the critical engagement so people will share memes of things that are demonstrably false you know all you have to do is just look it up um but they'll share them without double checking them because they run counter to the mainstream idea. And so what you get is, is this mindset where you think you're the most critical consumer of information because you question the mainstream media, but you don't question alternative uh, views at all. You give them a free pass. In fact, you, oh, you're happy to accept them if they're mutually contradictory sometimes. Um, because the real, the real goal becomes not so much finding out what's true, but casting doubt on a given narrative. So there's always this like, there's this negative, right? As long as it's not the mainstream view, I mean, what's wrong with the COVID vaccines? Is it that they're microchipped or is it that they are covert gene therapy? Or is it, or is it that they're going to cause infertility? Or it doesn't matter which one it is, as long as there's something wrong with them. And, it, and, and you do this scattershot methodology where you list 20 things that are wrong. And then um, if, if your interlocutor, can, you know, can disprove 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 percent of them, you're you're you still feel like your position stands because you can always find just one more. So it's it's this strange like um, trust in in anything that's against the thing you mistrust instead of actually a careful sifting of, of evidence, of sources, engaging with materials in a responsible way. So it's, it's, um, it, it, it parades as critical thinking, but it actually, in its excess, go, like, can't, can't sort of see its own sort of rear guard, you know, and, and gets taken over by this other form of irrational thinking. Yeah, it's, and, and I think this is probably how 
um, you know, very intelligent people can be drawn into conspiratorial thinking because, like you said, there is there are good reasons to mistrust the mainstream media. There's good reasons to question the motives of politicians or world leaders of various kinds. Um, and so, you know, it's it's good to cultivate. And, and I would tell anyone that they should cultivate a critical attitude, like a healthily critical attitude. But like you said, when when the trust sort of completely evaporates, um, then you start to um, you fall into this world where yeah, anything that is outside the mainstream media media is trustworthy. Anything that comes from the mainstream media is necessarily part of this grand illusion. Um, and I mean, I've seen people like, you know, there's a, a woman, uh, Naomi Wolf, who um, uh, in the, the 90s, I think it was, wrote a book called The Beauty Myth, which is this huge best-selling book. Uh, and she's, you know, considered a, a reasonably mainstream sort of feminist thinker and critical thinker. Um, and recently she's, it seems the last year or so, fallen into this COVID conspiracy stuff. And the last thing I know, she was talking on, sorry, on Steve Bannon's podcast. And I was thinking, what insane world are we living in where Naomi Wolf is chatting with Steve Bannon about things they, you know, share in common and, 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 and believe it's, it's so bizarre. Um, but yeah, it's cause this, this conspiracy theory united them. And, and it seems that um, even, even people, you know, who, who, um, who have the, the ability to think critically and, and, and think intelligently about things can, can fall into this. I mean, I, I've, I'll admit there have been times in my life when I've sort of, given too much credence to particular conspiracy theories you know like usually i can pull out of it after a while but for a little time i'm like oh i feel i'm kind of red-pilled about this and you know like i you know and then eventually you come to your senses but some people they don't come to their senses well, they stay there it's tricky because there are real conspiracies i mean this there's 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 kind of a linguistic problem because because conspiracy theorists will just say well i mean look at big tobacco look at um Oh, oh, what's the name of the the Tuskegee uh, Tuskegee experiment? experiment yeah, right. Um, look at Watergate. I mean, there, there's there's actual conspiracies in the world, and so um, it, it gets confusing. We need to be able to articulate that there is there is a style of thinking that doesn't work. It doesn't discover truth. It doesn't get you from from here to truth. Um, that we call conspiratorial thinking. Um, but people hear and say, well, well, that's awfully naive. You think there's th that nobody in the world has an alternate agenda, you know? And of course there's people in the world with alternate agendas all over. I mean, if I say, if I say that a given Catholic media outlet um, has been pushed towards conspiratorial, uh, conspiratorial thinking by, a, because their profits derive from the hits and interactions that this kind of uh, material generates. Well, I've just articulated a conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, I mean. So all of a sudden, you know, any explanation that involves anything like that is it, it becomes counter evidence. And so what what I want to be able to say is, there's a there's a style of thinking that is inadequate, right? And it's and and it and, and in in a way, it's it's fundamentally. Um, I don't mean to say that every person who does it is dishonest, but there's a dis there's a dishonesty at the heart of it because it 
It's not actually willing to go where the evidence goes. It's generally a conclusion in search of evidence or a conclusion in search of an argument, right? So if you're anti-vax, and the, then it's funny, you watch how, you know, if I'm LifeSite News, the question should largely be about the relation between the vaccines and abortion. And, and if you pay attention to the coverage, that's, that's hardly mentioned anymore. Right. It's and and it's it, it didn't it didn't grab. It was easily resolvable within uh, basic principles of Catholic moral theology. Um, you know, if 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 um, Francis had got the vaccine and Benedict had not, they might have made hay with that. But but both popes getting the vaccine together undercut that narrative. And so now it's all about um they, call, they say it's not really a vaccine. They say it's gene therapy. They say it's going to have all these uh, problems down the road um, that we're all part of some mass experiment. It's all part of some global reset. Um, it's not about abortion anymore. And so it's, it's like, okay, well, the abortion thing didn't work to undermine the vaccine. So we better find something else. And, and you just keep chasing an argument for a conclusion that you've, you've had from the beginning, which is, I don't want this vaccine. Um, and and there's something fundamentally dishonest about like having your conclusion and then searching all over for your for your argument. And I find that all the time with with this kind of stuff. Well, oh, you're muted, David. Apologies. Sorry. That that's a really good point. Um, in that you know there, there are valid questions people can have about the vaccines. You know, like the like you said the the. the idea of this this connection to stem cell lines that were originally derived from a you know aborted fetus um that um is is relevant and it's a, a real thing that um anyone in the church who's thinking you know rigorously in terms of more uh, catholic morals um has to take into consideration and it, it was taken into consideration the cdf talked about it that you know and that's it's pretty clear you know how that plays out. Um, but yeah, like you said, that wasn't enough because, you know, the, the, the idea that we're all, this is all this great reset, this is all part of a, a new world order uh, that, that is trying to, you know, control the population of the world. Um, that came first, I think, in a lot of cases. And then you, they find evidence that can, um, that seems to support their, their conclusion, but you have to have that basic trust that even though there are people with, um, you know, agendas out there, absolutely, um, that, you know, in general, you can, you can, you can trust the scientific community, you can, you can trust the global political community within limits. I mean, there's always limits, right? right? Like, um, but um, you have to have like, just some basic, you know, like, understanding that that not everyone is out to enslave us or, or not everyone is out to uh and and also that people are just not that organized even if they wanted to it's <laughs> it's so, yeah, incredibly so, difficult to do yeah there's a there's a few things one yeah one is the, the a lot of the things about conspiracy theories are, are just implausible in terms of organization right so i've i've recently been involved in in um, you know, a, a small political effort on a local municipal bill, you know, the other side imagines that we've got like international backing and we're all, like, and, and people on our side say the same thing about the other side. And it's, it's remarkable when I talk to someone on the other side, how, how like low budge everything is and how disorganized everything is. And like, it's really, 
And so we, we sort of imagine those kinds of things much too easily. Um, the, the, we also, you see this really weird dynamic among conspiratorial thinking, which is you trust certain mainstream sources when you want to. So very often you'll see this, even the CDC says, even Fauci says, even this article in The Lancet says, wait a minute, do we trust articles in The Lancet or not? Do we, like, it's it's this it's this strange, it, there's a very selective use of um, evidence. And that's one of the things that happens with this kind of thinking is you, you, you selectively grab at evidence that supports and you twist it to make it support. And then, and then you ignore other things. So you, there's always something else driving the bus. That's not the search for truth, right? Like I saw a guy post on my Facebook the other day, you know, your chances of dying from COVID. Well, the way he had done the calculation was was very just like subtly deceiving if you're not paying attention. He just took the number of deaths in Saskatchewan divided by the number of people at a certain date and said, you know, well, that's like way less than 1% chance, right? Well, that that looks plausible, except that that's, okay, there's 20 problems with it from a statistical point of view. That's at a certain date. That's if no one ever gets it again, right? Um but actually, you don't calculate it against the population. You calculate it against people who contracted it, right? It's it's like, what are your chances of dying if you get it? And then you also then another calculation is, what are your chances of getting it? It's not just like, oh, three months into a pandemic, X number of people have died out of a population of Y, and there's your... But it looks really compelling. Like someone just did a math equation on Facebook that says that virtually no one dies from this. And then... So then you end up with this like three and a half million people are dead, but somehow they're they're virtually they're, it's virtually zero though three and a half million somehow becomes virtually zero. Um, you know, someone else posted that um, at, this number has probably changed now because this is a few weeks ago. Seventy five or eighty people in the United States had died after being fully vaccinated. Had died of COVID after being fully vaccinated. Um, well, that was at the time that was there were 75 to 80 million fully vaccinated people. So that means your odds were one in a million. So when they say your odds of surviving are great, they get they give this tiny, tiny percentage of deaths. But when they say people die after being vaccinated, they give you a raw number that's 75 or 80 people died. Now, that looks like a huge number, but 3.5 million people dead looks like a tiny number. I mean, it's just this insane, you know? Yeah, I mean, if you if you don't have like a, a stronger understanding of statistics and how these things actually play out, it can be so easy to be misled. And I don't have a very strong understanding of statistics, so I have to be careful with that kind of stuff. But those are the kind of things that often get me sometimes. I'm like, oh, wait a second. But then I, you know, I have to I have to actually dig for some context. Yeah. Um, the uh, one one thing I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, you you cite um, a, a book in your, in your paper by uh, Nancy Rosenblum and Russell uh, Moorhead. It's called uh, "A Lot of People Are Saying the New Conspiracism and the Assault on, on Democracy." I haven't read this book, but as I've seen it come up a lot. And one thing that that I, I liked about it was they that you mentioned was they they said that you know these days with this sort of new conspiracism, one mark of it in, in some ways is that there's the theory part is missing from conspiracy theory. Now, 
in, instead you get more like an avalanche of misinformation that seeks to undermine this the, any kind of possibility of truth just so that people can push a particular narrative and, and you connect this idea to uh friedrich uh, nietzsche and i think that's that's fascinating um just for, for people who don't know nietzsche he's the 19th century philosopher who really altered thinking on values and 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 came up with ideas like the will to power and and the superman um but could you could you expand a little on how this new type of conspiracy theory relates to to nietzsche as, as you see it right right so the what the authors of that book point out is that conspiracy in our contemporary and you know information environment conspiracy theories don't need to theorize very much they can just pause it they can just assert uh just put out a tweet um, and, and all of a sudden this idea is credible. Now it's, I mean, what do you mean by credible? I mean, to people who are looking for something to believe that aligns with their, you know, preconceived notions on a given issue, you just, you just tweet it and you don't need to give much backing. You just say something. Um, and in particular, they look, they look at Trump's record on Twitter. Uh, not only sometimes things he produced himself, but also things he retweets. Right. So someone someone just says anything and Trump retweets it. And now it's a thing. Um, and you don't you don't need to double check if it's true or or if it's, you know, how it relates to the facts. All you need to check is, does it comport with your worldview? And if so, then you believe it. And and so conspiracy uh, conspiracism has gone from conspiracy theorizing to conspiracy asserting and. And I thought it was related to Nietzsche's sort of um, sense that that external limits are need to go right. Like there's there's nothing beyond me to say what's what's good and true. I'm I, I'm a self-made person. I decide what's right for me. I decide what's true for me. I act the way I want to act, regardless of cultural or societal um, restrictions. And so. Um, the, the fundamental category is not truth, but it's power, right? And and if you can just assert something, uh, uh, some conspiracy, without any, without even making a pretense uh, of of um, making an argument for it, right? Uh, of some pretense of connection to truth, you just say this is how it is. Uh, that looks to me like now the fundamental um, bar that we're measuring. Is is not truth that outside of us? It's power, and whoever has the power can say what they want to say, and they yeah. can leverage the, the the media environment to say it if they want to. Yeah, and that really fits with with Nietzsche's idea of the the Superman as someone who makes his own truth. You know, in a world that where there are no like absolute values, what you do is you you create your own out of whatever you can find, essentially. And I I mean I saw that in the um, the whole stop the steal thing that evolved after um, it became clear that, that Trump, you know, lost the election. I I saw all these, you know, little bits um, popping up here and there, some things that Trump was retweeting that were coming from classic conspiracy theory sources, like sometimes QAnon people and, and that sort of thing. And over time, I thought, these are all false. And I looked into some of these, I, I dug into them, a lot of people looked, dug into them, they were all false, but over time they created 
a sort of pseudo truth, which was this idea that there was widespread um, uh, election fraud. And it's a, a truth that, that Trump essentially constructed. And it's a truth that the, the, the Republican Party seems to be um, finding it very difficult to, to let go of. So it's, uh, yeah, it's such a, a, a fascinating, disturbing, uh, disturbing thing. Um, but I, I find it interesting how it does have its roots in this um, very modern sort of way of thinking this, this, that derives from, from Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche really helped to define some of the, the paths that, that philosophy took during the 20th century and, and, and especially this sort of create your own truth um, mentality. Yeah, and, and one of the fundamental things about conspiracy theories is they're, re they're really designed to sow doubt. They're not really designed to build a case. They're, they're designed to sow doubt against a, another thing. And so if, if some of their case building falls apart, they can just fall back on, yeah, but I still have no reason to trust this other thing, right? And the, the, the end game of that kind of doubt sowing is, is, is in the end a, a sort of total cynicism, right? And, and that's what leads, well, then, then there's nothing left but the assertion of power. And it's, it's, it's remarkable to watch Catholics who up until like three years ago were, I mean, full on Pope Benedict, you know, dictatorship of relativism. Relativism is terrible. Um, and now those same people on my Facebook will say, how can we even know what's true anymore? I, I mean, they, they make these sort of, these sort of bold claims of, and that that's their response. If, if they make some claim that's that you can disprove, then the fallback is, well, who even knows what's true? These were people who hated yeah. relativism up until three years ago. And, that, and that's something that, you know, on the critical Catholic we've tried to, you know, put forward is that you you can't, as a Catholic, you know, morally speaking, you can't use lies or misinformation to achieve a goal, no matter what the goal is, no matter, even if it's a even if it's a noble goal, if you're harnessing lies and 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 fooling people and trying to create your own truth or, you know, the sort of thing. Um, that's, that's an illegitimate path to take. So, um, I will take the ring and march into battle and defeat. Yeah. <laughs> no, throw in the fire. That's yeah. evil. If you win with that, you become Sauron, you know, that's, that's a very good analogy. I think that's, I hadn't, I'd never thought of that, but that's actually a very, very good analogy. The ring. Yes, it's uh, it's very tricky, very tricky. Yeah, that's um, why Gandalf won't touch the thing. Yeah, yeah, because he he knows what that that's its power, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he's susceptible to it. I'm sure, just like uh, anyone else, we all we all are. We're all susceptible to that that way of thinking. Um, I'd I'd like to move on uh, to another paper um, that you published recently, uh, and this one was in the uh, Church Life Journal, on Catholic creationism as a conspiracy theory. And this this is fascinating. I I, I, I wrote a little bit uh, a, a year or so ago on, on Catholic creationism because I came across, I think, the same people that you came across, okay. uh, the Col Colby Center. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, I was a little shocked that there, there were Catholics who took this fundamentalist approach to uh, creation or creationism. Uh, and, but I, at the time I wasn't thinking of it in terms of a, a conspiracy theory. And, uh, I think this, this frames it in a, in a really interesting way. Um, so maybe, could you just tell us a little bit about how this essay came about? Though? Right. Look so I wrote a piece like six, seven years ago, 
just for our archdiocesan blog, uh, explaining a basic Catholic approach to evolution, right? It's not a problem given our, the way that Catholics read scripture, given our doctrine of creation, um, given the magisterium's basic approach to this question, given, I quoted Augustine and Aquinas on these questions, um, said, you know, it's, it's not a problem for Catholics. Evolution isn't a problem for Catholics. Um, now, an internet sort of self-appointed internet, you know, orthodoxy watchdog came across this years later and, and went after me. So um, it, was, it was in response to his sort of, well, so he went after me. I wrote a bit of a response. Then he got uh, uh, this group to, uh, I thought it was over. Um, but they, they wrote me this massive document going after me and I, I read it and it was just, as I was reading it, now I had, this is after I started, you know, my bishop asked me to develop some expertise in conspiracy theories. So now I had these categories. I started reading it and I was like, wow, like this is, so I don't mean to say that any, any person who, who um, has ever believed in, in some version of creationism is automatically a conspiracy theorist. Because I, I don't mean that the content is a conspiracy theory. I mean that the way that these people were engaging was conspiratorial. And it was, it was things like, yeah, once you demonstrate that a certain claim is false or doesn't prove what you think it's, it claims, you just move on. Like, you just ignore it. You, you, you pretend it didn't even happen. Um, so there, it was just chock full of, of these sort of bogus claims. And so I, I, wrote, I wrote this piece for Church Life Journal um, as kind of as a response, but I didn't want to do a direct response to them because that felt to me like quicksand. Uh, so, so I just, what I wanted to do instead was to write something to help Catholics in general understand what's going on when they encounter this kind of thinking. And I think, I think it was very successful in that regard. Like I've, I've got a lot of feedback from people who said, yeah, like I always thought something was funny, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And you've just described my experience. You know, um, I even, uh, a science teacher, uh, told me that someone in his family, uh, sort of reconsidered their creationism based on it because there was there was something in there that that oh now I see how there's a kind of dishonest form of argumentation going on here. So I didn't focus on the scientific claims, which is what they would want me to do. I focused on the the the, the form of argumentation, uh, which is which is largely illegitimate. Of course, they wrote a lengthy response to me again, and I just said why. Well, in carry on. I mean, if you want to write 50,000 words every time I open my mouth, they might write another one now. I don't know. I mean, yeah, the, there's only so much time in the world, you know? Well, um, I think it's important that the distinction you made between, you know, those who, who maybe let's say don't believe in, in evolution, right. Um, who are Catholics. Who don't, we're not required to believe in evolution as Catholics. Right. Um, but there's nothing, stopping us from <laughs> right. you know accepting evolution and like you you mentioned in your piece there's uh recent popes have certainly talked about evolution like it's um just simply an established they just uh, take it for granted take yeah. it for granted yeah, yeah. um but there, there's something very different about this type of creationism um a lot of people tend to associate this type of creationism with fundamentalist uh, protestantism um, what what are the differences between uh, fundamentalist Protestantism, which is I, I maybe I would say is is more common, at least in the United States, maybe, um, right. and 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 this kind of Catholic creationism? 
Yeah, so they'll, they'll overlap and use each other's resources on the scientific questions. But the Catholic creationist actually has to deal with the problem that the magisterium doesn't seem to have a problem with evolution, right? So there's this whole extra layer of like, how do I deal with the fact that the popes talk about it like it's like it's sort of taken for granted scientific fact that that the overwhelming majority of of the theological guild has no problem with it. Um, I mean, even in in um, in the court cases in the United States, that, you know, about teaching intelligent design or creationism in schools, Catholic experts and, and Catholic dioceses and whatever show up on the witness stands in favor of evolution. I mean, th- this is awkward for the Catholic creationist, right? And so they they end up in they end up in in having to do a lot of work with with some very meager resources that they find in the tradition. They take one line from the Council of Trent, which is not even about this, and they try to make it fit and they try to make hay out of it. And then they take some some pronouncements from the Pontifical Biblical Commission from the early 20th century, um, which are a little, I mean, they're more closely related than the than the Tridentine um passage they, they grasp after. And then, but they try to make this work, but they have to make these things like super authoritative and more authoritative than everything else that the church has said and done on these topics. And they really have to stretch them to say things they never say. And so that's some of the work I did in that piece is to just like, I did a deep dive into walking through some of those passages in church teaching, what the historical context was, what it actually says, how this applies to the question, how this relates to other things in church teaching. I mean, the, the Tridentine, uh, Tridentine um, uh, text in question is then interpreted, I mean, later popes refer to it and tell us how they how they interpret it, you know, like Leo the Thirteenth. So, I mean, I did that that kind of deep work, but but the Catholic creationist has to has to like really paddle upstream against their own tradition, which means that they're basically suspicious of like anything coming out of Rome for like the last 50, 60, 70, 80 years, right? Is all suspect. Uh, and then it gets lumped in with everything, right? It's so the document they sent me, it's they're, they're against ecumenism. Uh, we need to talk more about fathers as heads of households. Um, uh, you know, this is about um degenerate liturgy like every everything is connected with evolution it's it's really something to behold that create uh, conspiracy theories can become that way like QAnon does it too right it, they can become all encompassing they explain everything they're the lens for understanding everything that's going on in the world i think that's happening to some degree with, with people about vaccines and stuff now it's it's every single political or or even, I mean, even the weather, like there's, there's, there's people who think it's the end of the world and this is the mark of the beast. And then when the rivers were running red in, in Russia because of the mining runoff or whatever, it was the, it was literally the end of the world, you know, um, they can become this all encompassing thing. Uh, yeah. I've heard a lot about the end of the world <laughs> the last, you know, while, but if you, if you look at the history of you know, all the people who have ever claimed it was the end of the world. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And it always leads to that great disappointment when, um, when the when actually doesn't end. One who's, who's, he's been pumping the end of the world for 20, 30 years now. And all his followers who, and all his people who send him money, they're convinced that this time he's right. Well, I, we went to world meeting of families in Philadelphia. I think it was in 2015. 
And we were told not to go because Mark Mallett had said the world is going to end starting with a catastrophe in Philadelphia during a world meeting of families. Well, of course it didn't happen, but that doesn't stop anyone from thinking that he's right this time. I, it's, it's funny to me how, how he maintains the trust of his audience when he's got a, he's batting like over he's zero for infinity, you know? And it's the same. It's the same with QAnon as well. There's always these predictions about, you know, all the arrests are going to happen. All the, Democrat politicians are going to be sent to Guantanamo Bay or executed. And it's always going to happen like next Wednesday and then it doesn't happen. And, but they just keep going on. And I mean, even now after like nothing has come true, there are, there's still a, 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 a much smaller now, but, uh, but very devoted band of QAnon people out there still. Um, what one, one thing that I, you know, the, some of the evidence that um, I guess magisterial evidence that, um, these Catholic creationists bring to the table um, is this, and you, you, you quoted it here. Um, it's the 1909 response of the Pontifical Biblical Commission on Genesis. And I, I found this interesting because there they, they talk about how, I think, I think the quote was something about how the, you know, Genesis should be read um literally or, or something along those lines right but as you pointed out this has to be read in context of of what was going on at the time and and you said that you know this was the time of the uh, the modernist uh controversy right so um and there was this huge movement that was part of modernism that was about a, a really radically skeptical approach to uh biblical studies and you know, this is more of a response to that, to that sort of um, sort of extreme um, skepticism, rather than right. a, a a sort of healthy um, criticism or um, you know maybe non literal understanding of, of of the Bible. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Well. So yeah, I, I think it, even if certain um, claims that the biblical commission made at the time, right? So. Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch is a big one, right? Um, or a Matthean priority, right? That Matthew was written before Mark. Now, almost the vast majority of biblical scholars today think Mark was written before Matthew. Well, how much does that matter for the life of faith? Which one was written first? But some people think it's a huge deal because they think the church has taught definitively that Matthew came first. But the bigger question at the time was that that what we call historical critical method was threatening to undermine the scripture as the word of God, period. It was just going to make it into one more historical document with, with no bearing on the life of faith. And that's what the church was pushing back against. And so it, 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 jo Pope Benedict or Joseph Ratzinger um, said on the 100th anniversary of the Pontifical Biblical Commission that they overshot the mark. And they actually, they, they what I can't remember the exact term, but um, injured the credibility of the church by overshooting the mark, right? Um and on this particular question, um, there's one uh, one clause. There's like eight questions, and on the second one is this is the strongest one where it says like there's some, there has to be some sort of historical core to what's going on in in the Genesis narratives. But then they conveniently ignore that like several questions down, the the document itself says like you don't have to interpret six days as six literal days. It could it could be figurative, you know, and like if 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 the strictest document you can find in the history of the Vatican says that you don't need to interpret six days as six literal days, then you're pushing real hard 
on that one question to, to do all the heavy lifting for you. When in other parts of the same document, in the same context where they're responding to modernism, won't even carry your water for you. You know, So they, they have to do this very selective kind of reading to, to make it work. And it's when you start, if all you see is the quote, and this is how these things work in general, if all you see is the quote, you're like, oh, maybe there is something here. And then you find out all the things they left out and you're like, okay, wait a minute. Someone's trying to manipulate me, right? And it, it's the same move as these statistics when someone's like 70 people died and then someone else is like, you realize that means one in a million. Oh, oh, I guess I'm being manipulated, right? And if you go if you go down that road with church teaching the way that they seem to, you can it can become absurd after a while. Like the, I know that there are, and this is a different group of people, but I know there are, Catholic geocentrists out there. So the people who believe that the earth is the um, center of uh, our galaxy and, uh, and that, um, you know, everything revolves around the earth. And, um, you know, basically because the church took that for granted uh, until, you know, after the time of Galileo, um, that it must be true. So you have to, um, the, and they'll go, they'll, they'll take like, they'll use scientific methods, um, pseudo methods um, to, to try to prove this. Um, and yeah, you can, you can just go back further and further. If you're not taking into consideration the fact that the church does learn things over time, we do like, the, right. you know, and, and it's the popes who are often the ones who, um, you know, develop things in this way and develop our understanding of the world and 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 reinterpret church teaching in a, a new way with a new interpretation that's more in line with what we know now. So, but if you if you if you miss that subtlety and you just go you you're just focused on these little quotes and these little right. um, things that you think are just absolute that you, you know you get sucked into that. The geocentrism is fascinating. So, what a lot of people don't realize they may have heard of Dr. Pamela Acker, who's written this Catholic guide to vaccines, right? And they think, oh, a, a Catholic doctor wrote a guide to vaccines. Great. Well, it, it, she couldn't get published by any uh, reputable uh, uh, Catholic or scientific publisher. So she was published by the Colby Institute. Well, the Colby Institute also publishes geocentrist. Okay, I mean, so they do you're, that. Okay, they do. You're getting yeah. your vaccine information from from a publisher that says that the Earth is at the center of the universe. Yeah. And I mean, here here's my favorite story about this. This is mind boggling. Um, there was a, a very traditionalist priest uh, from the Fraternal Society of St. Peter, right? So Latin mass group. He wrote, uh, he, had, he had some training in science. He wrote a book about creation and he accepted the evidence for an old uh, earth or old universe. And uh, he had never heard of this group, the Colby Institute, but they went after him. Uh, and so then he did a little research after they went after him. And he looked at the work of St. Maximilian Kolbe, who, who they took their name from, and found out that Maximilian Kolbe himself believed in an old universe and thought the scientific for evidence for that was compelling. So he wrote to the Kolbe Institute and said, you know, have a little integrity, either change your name, right, or, or stop teaching this stuff that's contrary to what St. Maximilian taught. And their response is so telling. I mean, it's, it's really... It's, it's, it's beautiful in, in a way in how it encapsulates the worldview. They said, no, 
we will keep him as our patron because now in heaven, St. Maximilian recognizes his error and will be working overtime to counteract the harm he did on earth by, by teaching this. Uh, and so he uh, he's actually the perfect patron for us because we're we're helping him sort of cover his tracks here and undo the damage he did by teaching that kind of falseness. Now, if you can find an example of of a worldview that's more self insulated uh, than that, you know, I'll eat a hat of your choosing. I mean, like it's, that, it's that's, remarkable. That's that's in incredible self-deception on, on their part or self-justification yeah. and rationalization is just unbelievable. Um, so uh, on that note, because um, we, we're at the end of our time here, I just thought I'd ask one more um, question. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, do you think there's any way to pull people out of this once they've gone into it? And and if you, if you do think it's possible, are there any tips that you have? Yeah. So I think there's there's some really important distinctions, which is there are hardcore conspiracy theorists, and then there's a lot of people who are like, huh, I wonder about that. And I, there's a lot of uh, good work that can be done with people who are tempted, but not fully committed. I think the work that's been done on vaccines in the last five months, has there's been some incredible work that's got a lot of people who heard misinformation uh, got them good information so that they can make a better decision for them and their their family and their society. So I think there is a lot of room, even on on things like this uh, steal the election thing. Um, I knew people who were sort of who wondered, you know, they thought maybe this was plausible, and then and then they, as they engaged, honestly, it, it, the the dominoes started to fall. So I think I think the work is worth doing. If only because there's a lot of people who are tempted that when they get good information, they can make better decisions. How much work can you do for the hardcore person? That's that's a trickier question. And a lot of them do never come out of it. But there are people who do. And one of the things that's important in, in that um, regard, uh, by the way, and on this count, I'll recommend Mick West's book. I think it's called Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, and he's a, he's a he's a debunker um, who, who runs an internet metabunk, an internet debunking site. And he says he he tells a bunch of stories in that book of people who came out of the rabbit hole. There's various things that happen. Sometimes, finally, someone in the rabbit hole says something too crazy for them, and that sends them back up, looking at the other things they believe. Um, big thing is to is to, he he emphasizes be really patient. Wait with people. Give people the opportunity. Don't back people in the corners. D like don't don't attack them. Don't their identities on the line. Uh, a lot of people have invested personal identity in this. They've cut off friendships. They've cut off family. Sometimes their conspiracy groups and in, in their social media are most of their social network. It's it's most of who they know and most of who they talk to. And so you're not just arguing someone out of out of uh, an ideological opinion. You're arguing them out of a lifestyle, and you're arguing them out of a social circle. And so um, he says, like, patience and gentleness are really key. Um, there. Then he says, I mean, keep making your case, but but um, but make your case in a way that that um, 
it, it's really hard to like keep your composure because sometimes it's infuriating. I mean, if if someone you know is going to refuse a vaccine when they're a high risk individual for COVID, it's infuriating, right? If you're like, you're going to give my, you know, my grandkid, you're 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 putting my grandkids at risk of not having a grandparent when you probably had a good 10 or 15 years. Um, that's infuriating, but, but playing that card and I've played it doesn't actually help. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's really wonderful advice. Actually, this idea that you got to be patient, you got to kind of walk with people for the long term and, and slowly, bring them out of this this world because yeah like you said and and like this uh, author you, you quoted um said it's it, this is a a culture this is a a sense of community that they have to remove themselves from slowly in order to um to get better it's very hard to give those things up um and it's very hard to give up that worldview once it's it's got its grip on you so yeah i think that's that's wonderful advice and maybe i'll make a prediction as we wrap sure related to that so, I mean, the big one right now is the mRNA vaccines, right? And there's yeah. there's rampant uh, conspiracy theories about them. And uh, those, I'm, here's my prediction. Those conspiracy theories have a shelf life. Um, because right now, uh, there's people right now who I won't get them. I won't get the mRNA vaccine. Their spouse gets them. All their kids get them. All their neighbors get them. And everybody's fine. We're all, right? You can read about crazy things on the internet, but at a certain point, you're fine. And I, I, my guess is five or 10 years from now, we're going to have one or two annual mRNA vaccines that are flu, cold, coronavirus. All these seasonal illnesses will be much reduced, almost gone in developed countries uh, because mRNA vaccines are, are really incredible when you start looking at, at the science. And the people who are against them now are going to forget how against them they were. They're going to retell the story. Oh, we just had some honest questions because it was new. And like all the really crazy stuff, no one's going to remember being on that side. And and it's 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 going to disappear because it can't be maintained in the face of the evidence. It's just, it's already overwhelming. The numbers going down are already pushing back against it. And and the yeah. softer part, of the, the softer part of the core is crumbling. The harder core is going to shrink, 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 because you cannot maintain that mRNA vaccines are a genocidal intervention when at once they've saved millions of lives, including your own family. Yeah, I think uh, this is, you know, the key that in the end, the the way the, re- the thing that will disprove a lot of this stuff is just our lived experience. So um, as time goes on, we're going to see say that a lot of this stuff was just um you know fake uh outrage or uh paranoia it'll fade away over time let's just let's just hope it happens sooner than later uh, the sooner it happens uh the the sooner we can get past the restraints and the lockdown that the people who hate the vaccines hate yes uh, absolutely all right well Thank you so much, Brett, uh, for uh, being on the show. It was fantastic talking to you. It was a really good conversation. Um, anyone who's interested in uh, reading more or hearing more from Brett, um, Brett Sulkeld, uh, his has a Thinking Faith podcast. Um, and you said you've got a lot of episodes already. And uh, Yeah, it's got to be around 300 episodes. So Great. it comes out every Tuesday morning. Anywhere you get your podcast, look up Thinking Faith. 
So people can can binge on that if they want to. Uh, yeah, 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 you can spend podcast. a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he also writes for uh, Church Life Journal at times and uh, has a book out on transubstantiation. So um, once again, thank you so much for being on The Critical Catholic. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was nice being with another Canadian, just us two, you know, uh, doing the Canadian thing here. So good, have, a, have, a, have a great, great night, eh? All right. So good to be with you. Thanks for having yes. me. Okay, wonderful.